Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week, I'm joined by Sky's special correspondent, Alex Crawford. She sits down with me to discuss her 30-year broadcast career, in which she has reported from Myanmar's Rakhine State, gaining evidence of what the UN called ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya. She was also the first journalist to broadcast from Tripoli, after rebel forces took over the Libyan capital. In this episode, we discuss how growing up in Zimbabwe primed her for a career in foreign correspondence, why certain stories aren't covered by our news cycle, Why don't we hear more about Yemen? Why don't we hear more about Iran? Mm -hmm. Well, it's really difficult to get in. Do you think if we could get into those places, we, we, we would be in there? Plus, we talk about the future of news as we know it and how, in an age of social media, we have to adapt. Alex, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thanks, Killian. It's so nice to be doing this in the studio. So, first and foremost... What is the view from your sofa at home? Talk me through your living room setup. Okay. Well, a lot of the time I'm not there, so I don't have any <laughs> setup. Um, but I, I've got these three fantastic pictures, which I thought were the epitome of art, which are my um, daughter's misshapen heads. <laughs> Which she did when she was about eight. And I framed them in these wonderful big um, Indian wooden things. And I love them because they're all Mm. all over the place. They're like a, a, I think they might be a self-portrait, but they're all all over the place. And every time she sees them, she says, oh, my God, I remember when you tried to convince me that they were good. (laughs) I still think they're good. And they just remind me of my, of, of them and yeah. creativity. To me, they're very creative. So that's that's immediately opposite, right next to the telly, a distraction from the telly. And um, and then record, there's a big record player, um, which I hilariously gave to my youngest. And she said, where's the shuffle button on this? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> One of my favorite things that I heard while doing my research for this interview was your Desert Island Discs, where your one of your tracks Sorry about that. was your daughter yeah. singing. And I thought, my goodness, like what a wonderful mother. What have you enjoyed watching on television when you get the chance? I say when you get the chance, it's a big caveat. Well, the thing is, I've realised during the course of trying to think about all my favourite programmes is that I'm really, really very, very boring. Okay. Um, I don't watch <laughs> a lot of Sky News. I'm I was afraid it's literally on in the background the entire time. Um, so much so, all my kids knew all the presenters, knew all their names, um, knew all the programs, um, everything. So I've got that on quite a lot. And then I flick a lot between BBC and Al Jazeera and CNN. Uh, but primarily it's Sky News because I just have to I have to watch what the competition's doing. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean, I was going to say this, when you work in news or any kind of current affairs job, I feel like there's an element that you always have to be switched off yeah. and that you can never really miss anything. So even when you're not working, you kind of are. Yeah, and that that is the drawback because I feel mm. like I'm keeping on top of stuff yeah. by watching. But it, um, so when I'm, when I'm meant to be off, mm. I, I deliberately try and switch 
to something else or yeah. do something else. I hesitate to say this, but like when I'm with the girls uh, and the, and Nat, who's my boy, although I hate I hate reality TV because I think <laughs> it's I think it's lazy TV. Okay, but that seems to be all that Britain is producing right now. Mm, and, and I hate the whole concept of this project program, but I've I've watched it because it's turned into a big family event. Love Island. Yeah, I got sucked in, I've and I feel embarrassed once. saying that. I know, and yeah, special correspondent watches Love Island. I love the headline already. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, special correspondent wants to be on Love Island. <laughs> wants to be one of the. No, it's just it. It is hilarious. A lot of the time, it's just it's a people watching exercise. Yeah. I was going to ask who controls the remote, but I think often when people have children, it does tend to be the kids. To get yeah. the final say. I think I think I would have to say it's definitely either the kids or um Richard. Mm. It's definitely not me. <laughs> That's all I know. It's definitely not me. And quite often we're we're confused because a lot of the time it's a switching between, you know, HDMI one, HDMI two, yes. HDMI three, and we and between Rich and I, we never know which one it is. So that mm. means we're powerless as far as the remote's concerned. Do you ever, as a family, watch your own work? No, not as a family. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not as a family. I tend, if I, if I, I hardly ever watch my own stuff because I've watched it so much in the production yeah, in the edits, of it. Yeah. And occasionally Sky's produced promos <laughs> with with me in it. And I I don't feel it's being done in a flattering way when the, when the kids are mentioning it. Because they 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 parrot what I've said in the in the promos. So, you know, you've got to keep your ear to the ground <laughs> and things like that. I know, but there's nothing more humbling, I think. Oh yeah. You know, it's definitely yeah, humbling. You know, all the awards that you have, but your children still get still know oh, how to get you. They press all the buttons. Yes. So I want to take it back in time because you have an incredibly interesting upbringing. You spent the first five years of your life in Nigeria and then you went to school in Zambia and then Zimbabwe. Can we talk a bit about your childhood and what that was like? Because normally in this section I ask, what's your first childhood TV memory? Mm. And I, I've heard you in an interview say you didn't really watch well, there wasn't TV because mm. TV um, was very much in its infancy yeah. in Zambia. I can't really remember pre five years old, mm. um, but I'm pretty sure there was it was non-existent because I remember mm. uh, when TV we got a, a TV and um, and I remember being allowed to stay up. It was only on for two hours a night, and there was there was a game show. And the Flintstones, and that was what was on. And it's just because Zambia got it relatively late, and then we <laughs> got it later than yeah. than other people, because it just wasn't a it just wasn't a big thing in yeah. our house. And when we did get it, it was um, we all sat round and watched uh, the Flintstones, and still talk about that. Yeah, and it's like. Oh my lord! I don't know what my kids would make of the Flintstones. I remember watching <laughs> with its that hidden, hid, well, not yeah, so hidden not so messages. Hidden, yeah, it must have been such an incredible childhood. My parents grew up in South Africa, and my family—a lot of them—are still out there. Me and my sister grew up in the UK, and I would go and visit, and they would go to school barefoot, even in the same lifetime as me, and the. Education was so outdoorsy and yeah. there was such an encouragement to live this very 360 life. Life is really for living and this kind of all one and the same with nature. And I wondered if that was how your upbringing Definitely. was. Definitely. I mean, my my memories of my childhood were just really happy. Yeah. Um, it was very, very outdoorsy. That's why television wasn't mm. such a big factor because I can't even really remember being indoors much. Yeah. It was all outside and doing lots of sport mm. and at our schools that was a big emphasis on sport yeah. and everyone doing it mm -hmm. um and you know being competitive and being in teams and um it was just a a very happy childhood also my my parents were at the you know in Zambia at a time when it was growing uh, very structurally and infrastructure was growing my my um, father was a civil engineer so mm -hmm. he was involved in building and there was a definite they they sort of 
Kenneth Kundu as the president was very welcoming of foreigners and sort of wanted people from abroad to help build um, Zambia. Yeah. And um, it was, it just felt like it was a exciting time yeah. to be there. Some of the most interesting people that I've met are the people that grew up and moved around a lot. And I think the idea of having home being somewhere different over the course of your lifetime. And I wonder how that's kind of seeped into your work later on. And if you enjoy moving around and if that's part of the job that you almost relish a little bit, or if that's something that you think, you know, actually, where would you say home is? I don't know. Yeah, just everywhere. I don't know. I live in Turkey at the moment. Mm. I don't feel like it's home. Okay. Even though um, our youngest did her final three years schooling there Mm. and she's got lots of friends and feels very connected to Turkey and wanted us to sort of set up a base there. Yeah. It doesn't feel like home. We were in South Africa, three of them graduated from high school there and that felt very familiar to me, not because I lived in South Africa when we were young because um, my father didn't want to live in South Africa because of apartheid at that time. Mm. But it was it it felt familiar for lots of other reasons and um i did my early work experience there and um there was something about africa that i i mean it seems weird to just blanket a whole continent but um the parts of africa that i'd been to i i just really loved and they f- yeah. I, probably because i spent my early years there mm. and i came from a very very small little copper town um, called Kitwi, where there was um, at that time it was now big, huge, and and thriving and big copper copper mining area. But at that time it was very small. It mm. had two schools and didn't even have a cinema. It had one. The cinema opened, and I remember that being a big event. You know, when the cinema opened, and um, you know there weren't very many supermarkets. I remember lining up with my my mother to sort of. Because there was, uh, there was, they imposed sanctions against Zimbabwe because of of their um, their uh, Ian Smith stand of um, he didn't want the typical one person one vote, mm. <laughs> so all the uh, neighbouring African countries took a stand against it. Uh, but that meant that Zambia was 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 very badly um, cut off. Yeah. Um from the the trade route from South Africa and um you know we we um we were just lining up for things and my mother grew a lot of her own vegetables and made her own yogurt and things like that. Um yeah, so it it felt like it was um it was an interesting time then and uh, I think back to when my parents first went to Nigeria and it was it was it was also just growing at mm. that stage now it's you know um in, a, an incredible powerhouse and overtaken south africa as the biggest economy in in africa but then it sound it seemed um quite exciting for my parents yeah you know but everything was was just at the beginning of growing mm. i also wonder if the conflict that you saw growing up in Zimbabwe, if that ever seeped into your career or was maybe why you like investigating or reporting on areas of conflict? Mm, I think it probably had a a lot to do with my approach to it Mm. because it didn't feel that alien. Yeah, okay. Uh, You know, the the area where I'd grown up, even going to school, you know, They'd shut the borders. The only people who were allowed to go over were the school children. We were traveling from Zambia to Zimbabwe to, um, we were very lucky to, to go to boarding school. Um, and, uh, and the only people who they were letting over were the school children. But that, uh, you know, they, they stopped us at the border and everyone had to get off the bus. And there were all these armed guys around who thought that we were being used to smuggle weapons in and, and to hide various contraband and things. Um, and that just, because that was part of our childhood, it, um, I guess it became normalized. Mm. Um, and it, like, even when I, you know, went to um, India, which was a lot longer, a lot later with my own children, 
they grew up in India after the Taj attack, where it was quite normal to have, um, you know, hostage drills and things and what to do if someone came into the the um, school with guns and things um, and how they could lock down for two weeks and just live underground in the school for two weeks. So I think when you grow up in an atmosphere like that, unwittingly it becomes s- sort of normalized. Yeah. I think it's so strange because the idea, even for me, if I go into an airport, even you know, in parts of Europe where you go into an airport and there's, uh, I guess, border control or uh, police force with guns, I find that quite shocking. Mm. And I think maybe that's because I haven't seen that. I wonder if that also changes your perception of, I'm not going to say danger because you've spoken a lot about your instincts and I really like that that is a big part of your work and, and how you trust the kind of inner workings of your body to know if you're safe or how safe you are or if you need to leave. But I wonder if that mindset helps you push past perhaps barriers that other people would have. I think I'm looking at the person rather than the gun. Interesting. Right? Because I think you can read a person and uh, a read a situation. Mm. And that's probably more revealing than what they're holding or what they're sitting next to or where they're even sitting. Mm. And you can, everyone, it's not a, like a particular skill, but it's one that I rely on. Yeah. And I think you can, you can, you can tell very quickly within seconds, like almost subliminally. Um, yeah. Are they sweating? Are they scared? Are they nervous? Are they comfortable? Do you feel in danger just by looking mm. at it? And they don't even have to have a gun for you to feel in danger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they can. They can. They can have no weapon, and you can feel no. This doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. right. It's a sixth. It's kind of a. It's kind of a. Well, it's a sense. It yeah. Definitely. Um. And I think it's a bit underrated. Mm. Um. And if, and I, actually, I don't. You know, the, there'll be lots of discussions about whether it actually even exists or whether it. Is it really, I don't know, but I rely on it, and yeah. it served me quite well. Mm. And um. You know. That doesn't mean to say you always get it right. Yeah. But but better be safe. I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) What I really like about your story is that although you've won all these awards and you're an incredibly impressive person. Thank you. You (laughs) I've got her in a stranglehold (laughs) at this point. (laughs) You didn't actually intend on a career in journalism. I did I did well no, I didn't think of journalism as work. I don't know why. It didn't feel like work. I mean Mm. I didn't know any journalists. I didn't. Yeah. They weren't in my family. I didn't. I uh, hadn't had much access to any media, even mm. newspapers. I remember when I was because I was at I was at boarding school, so I didn't. I just didn't have. And in those days, I mean, you know, in in um, at Chisipiti, we uh, you know we were in a dormitory with thirty other kids. It was a bit different then. Mm. Um, and I was also, you know, when I first went, it was a, it was in Zimbabwe, which itself was in turmoil. I'm beginning to think, why my parents sent me there? <laughs> it doesn't make sense somehow. But um, for as a as a background and a and living history, I look back on it now and I think um, I was very lucky. Mm. I'd got an, an absolutely amazing insight into what it was like and how things progressed mm. and and I think it definitely helped form what I wanted to do my curiosity my sort of wanderlust and my nomadic lifestyle which I didn't think I had but my parents had it as well yeah and I didn't even really think that I thought we lived a huge amount of time in Zambia turns out it was just a fraction of my life <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you know what I mean mm. and I think but but also I think that's transferred to my own children who've led a very nomadic life. Mm -hmm. Some of it's been difficult for them because I think uprooting from schools is really difficult. Yeah. But it's also, you know, I I feel like we've... uh, There's a richness to it. There is definitely a richness that I hope 
everyone appreciates eventually. Yeah, <laughs> they will. <laughs> they will because then you get stories like you tell now. You know, I don't think you always realise, especially when you're growing up, how formative mm. some of the parts of your upbringing are and how actually when you are a fully formed adult and, you know, I don't think I'm even there yet. I think when Me you neither. get there. When yeah, do you actually no. feel fully formed? Hoping it's sometime soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so for me. I seem perpetually in a in an age of clinging on to youth, and I'm I'm happy to stay there. I'm, I'm with you because I'm the, I am that person. Yeah, I never I, emotionally I, matured beyond me neither. Something very young, but I think that's what journalists are. I think you have to. It's a it's a a young person's game, and that doesn't that doesn't change. And I don't mean that in terms of age. I think no, it's, it's a, a young mentality. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about you getting into broadcast. So you worked for the BBC. Well, actually, you did your traineeship, Train. yeah, and then moved on to BBC, and then Sky News when it launched. Why broadcast? I think that was that was definitely accidental. Okay, because after I'd done my training newspaper trainingship, mm-hmm. I applied to the BBC just to just to see because there was a job, in, yeah. you know, advertised, and I thought, okay, I'll try for that. And I, they put me on a radio training course, and then when I was doing the radio, local radio, having a fantastic time, it was a great really great um, foundation. The people were really friendly. The mm. newsroom was really active. It was There was lots going on in the area. It was great. I thought, well, I'll just apply for an attachment to TV, just to see what it was like in London. And then um, at the interview, I remember they said, well, actually, it's a job. It was Ron, Ron Neal then. And he said, well, does she want the job or not? And I thought, maybe I better say yes. And then I was in TV. Um, but it was a bit, uh, it was much earlier than I planned or e- I hadn't even planned it. I didn't even plan. I just thought I'll just dip my yeah. toe and see what telly's all about. And next thing I had this job and um, I didn't really much like the first job because okay. it was it was very, it was a huge newsroom and it was very... Uh, I got to write a, a sort of 20-second um, out-of-vision thing all day long. <laughs> and that was the same thing. And I, f- I thought that was quite mind-blowingly boring. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to do reporting. And okay. I found myself in this sub-editor's job, which wasn't what I wanted to do. So how did you then transition? Because I know that you've spoken about sometimes you've been... Not so lucky when it comes to, to job <laughs> that's, a, that's a really generous way of putting it. I was bloody awful at interviewing, <laughs> it seems. Or maybe I just wasn't what they anyone wanted. I don't know. Well, but seems. I kept on getting yeah, I kept on getting turned down. Um and Was um, your eye always on foreign corresponding? I didn't actually that didn't crystallise in my head, but that was obviously where my interests were Mm because even when I went for a job at BBC for a political correspondent and I did this huge long interview because when you go for a job at the BBC it's almost like you're on you're you you come in and there's a panel of people (laughs) all interviewing you and at the end of it the political the head of politics said sounds like me like you want to be a foreign correspondent and that was like years before I actually was one because so that's just where my interests were. Mm. They were they were just much more uh, abroad, uh, yeah. or much more. I just think the whole the world is a big is a big landscape, and it's and there's so many great stories out there, and so many different countries which are have got all those stories. Yeah, that it to me it seemed a bit crazy to limit yourself to one country. So interesting because I'm going off piece here, but recently I feel perhaps on Twitter, uh, that lots of people have been saying that we're missing out on lots of stories as well and that there are really important stories that need to be covered that perhaps aren't getting the space that they need to Mm. or the awareness. And we'll come on to talk about your documentary in Mexico. But I... What do you think about that? Do you think that we are I think are they're absolutely stories? right. Yeah. Oh, my God. They're absolutely right. And um, most newsrooms, unfortunately, um, are constrained by economics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're also, I think, unfortunately, everyone's 
getting slightly strapped by clicks and viewing figures. Yes. And, um, well, we, you know, there's a lot of interest in this story or this part of the world. No one's interested in that or this plays well and that. And unfortunately, journalism, I think, has always been about good content and doesn't matter yeah. where it is you can get people interested if you do it well mm -hmm. and you and they we're in a really discriminating we've got everyone's got a very discriminating audience now which yeah. is the world and they know what's good and what's not good mm -hmm. and they know they might not know always what's genuine because there's so much good fakery and good yeah. disinformation misinformation but they if they that's why i think it's important for myself and my fellow foreign correspondents to to get out there and press the soil and get in. Because also that's the only way I know it's true as yeah. well. Yeah. I want to be able to sit across someone and work out myself whether they're telling the truth, mm. whether there is a Armageddon down the road or it's that way instead. Yeah, And I, I don't really trust anything else mm. apart from my own team and and my instincts. Yeah. And if I can't see it or feel it or know it for certain, I'd rather just veer away from it. And I think the 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 audience is quite they often say things like, Why don't we hear more about Yemen? Why don't we hear more about Iran? Mm -hmm. Well, it's really difficult to get in. Do you think if we could get into yeah. those places? We 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 would be in there. I mean, recently, you know, down to the the absolutely excellent work of one of my colleagues, a Middle East editor, Zain Jafar. We got a, a visa to get into Yemen, and then we absolutely hammered the story as best we could. But it's so difficult. That's if, so interesting. If I could get a visa to get into Iran, I'd be there in a shot. You know, it's phenomenally difficult, and and even if you bend the rules. You can't possibly do that with Iran yeah, no. um, or even with Yemen. But certain countries in the past, particularly during the Arab Spring, and it, it's possible to, you know, uh, you know, people were, were crossing from one country to another because it was anarchy and um, no one was really in control of the borders. And then you get criticized for, for breaking the rules. Well, yes. sometimes the rules have to be broken. Yeah. You so know, you just like if there's a if there's a rule that girls can't be educated, do, does that make it right? Just because it's there's a, a rule, rule, there's a law about it. We've got to, so I think we've got to be more questioning and journalists are generally those people yeah. who are more questioning and should be doing the exposing and the, um, you know, uh, proving mm. what's going on. What do you think about the first time that you were ever on an assignment? Did you feel that anything could prepare you for it? Did you feel ready? And what was the experience like? Um. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What was your first assignment, do you remember? I was covering the IRA um, um, bombs in in Northern Ireland. Um, I, I guess as my as a fully fledged reporter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think every, people have a different view. I think I I personally think it's much better for people to take it slowly, and often often student journalists want to go in at the top. Because they think big and they they want to immediately get onto an international television channel or a a national newspaper. I would always advise them, and I think I mean this this helped me because maybe because I'm a slow learner and <laughs> it took me about twenty years to to get 
even slightly confident. But I think it's much better to go small and mm-hmm. learn big and take yeah. it slowly um, and learn learn all the ropes and make all your mistakes. They won't be all your mistakes, but there'll be a lot of mistakes, you know, getting it right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember um, one of my early, when I was on the local newspaper, you know, having to go and talk to bereaved parents um, who, you know, I think some one kid at school had got a javelin through their neck during sports day or something. Those are really good foundations to learn how to cope with people, how to cope with bereavement, Mm. Um, even car accidents that we used to have to go around. I mean, I absolutely hate the job. There's nothing worse than knocking on um, somebody's door. But you, you quickly know and learn very quickly whether they want to talk to you and how to deal with it. Yeah, something that comes up and something that I thought about when I was watching Women at War Mexico was how do you handle or how do you get into the headspace to have these conversations? And I know you're incredibly experienced, so perhaps you don't have this at all, but is there ever a fear of kind of saying the wrong thing or what's the headspace that you get into and what preparation do you do to make sure? Mm-hmm. Because you can't you can't control how someone reacts. No, and there's always, I think there's always a worry of... Um, saying the wrong thing and I'll really try hard not to um and I think when I was a a young journalist just starting out um I didn't really I didn't really see the point of knocking on people's doors who'd who'd lost their young kids in car accidents I felt that was pointless and could lead to more trauma for them mm. but quite often very often they wanted to celebrate their they were in grief, but quite often they they wanted to get their their child. They wanted to be able to talk about what they'd done, what they'd achieved, you know, um try and get justice if it had been a drunk driver or whatever. And all those things are still relevant even even now. Mm. I think talking to to people who are in grief or suffering is is incredibly hard mm-hmm. incredibly hard it's not pleasant no because I, f- I feel like you probably need to feel something mm-hmm. to have any sort of empathy yeah and if you don't have empathy you're probably going to say the wrong things mm-hmm. and I, I don't know whether I do say the right things but I desperately try not to add to their trauma and I try not to um upset them even more. Mm -hmm. There's one moment in the documentary that really came to mind and it's when, so you're in Mexico and there's a shooting that seems to be out of nowhere and it's two men are killed and the wife of one of the men is there and she's five months pregnant and you see this grief and this shock from this horrific accident that's happened just outside her home. How do you handle those situations and walk away from them. Do you feel a level of responsibility mm. for the interviewee in those situations? Well, with Jennifer in particular, the woman that you're talking about, I honestly thought she was a bystander at that point because yeah. there were quite a few um, people all standing by because there was there were police there, mm. a couple of flashing lights and and I saw her standing by as so we just got chatting and then she said she was the she knew the people in there. She said, oh, Right, and then it turned out it was her, her partner, the father of her children. It was, and like, you do kind of see it on whoa, screen. This, yeah, this sort of revelation that she's. And, yeah, mm. and she, I thought, um, I felt very sorry for her actually, because it was none of her friends were there yet. She was like standing there, sort of pretty much on her own, thinking, "What the hell? Yeah, my whole life's just changed in a in a second. And what was strange as well, in some respects, is that place that seems so dangerous Mm. and 
so violent is also, you know, a, a kind of a tourist hotspot and how these two parallels can exist. And I think that's perhaps why we don't know that there is a war that's happening. It's a war against women and there's it's a war of violence. And some of the statistics from the beginning of the documentary are incredibly harrowing. There's over 3,000 women are murdered every year. That's 10 a day. And when you break it down, that's one every two and a half hours. And then on top of that, there's the estimated 24,000 women who are missing. Why do you think we're not picking up on this epidemic of brutality? I think Mexico seems like an awful long way away for mm. most people in, in this part of the world. Mm. I mean, in America, they're very focused on it, um, you know, but... I guess because of yeah, the relationship. Yeah, definitely. And I think because, you know, there's been so much talk about the wall and, mm. you know, yeah. um, building it and extending it and all the rest of it and the migration that they have to and from um, between the two countries. So I think that's one big big reason. But that's also kind of what drives me and my team to to do it, actually, because I wasn't very well versed with what was going on there at all. You know, I was not at all. Mm. And uh, when when my team, the director, Toby, sort of suggested it and did research and was presenting it to me, and then I started doing my own looking into it, it, it is staggering, really staggering. And then you start thinking, why haven't we done it a long time before now? And also now I think the age that we're in, there's no limit. There, there actually are, there's no limit to anything, not with YouTube or, yeah. and with um, the internet and social media. There's like, there's, there's no boundaries at all really to stories or journalism or, and there's a great relatability now. Mm. Much more because, probably because of the internet, but also just because, you know, we've got access to so many more things through, yeah. you know, Netflix and Apple and, you know, that we're, we're, we're becoming much smaller world. So yeah. I think that's, that's also a, a draw. Yeah, yeah, playing big part. I went back and watched the Women at War Afghanistan and... I think what was really interesting for me is obviously you hear about that, you hear about what's happening in Iran at the moment as well Mm. uh, with the women there. But I found it very difficult to watch as a woman. Mm. And I think that's because there's there's no right or wrong. There's no, um, I don't want to downplay sexism that happens here. But when you see it on that scale and when you see it on that level, it feels so different and it feels like a human rights violation, which often it is. As a woman reporting in those situations, and I want to be careful because I I am aware men don't get asked these questions, but... Well, there's a reason why they don't get asked. Yes. Because they're not women. Therefore, they will never, ever understand it. No. it's That is, unfortunately, they can maybe have a level of understanding. Or an empathy, but they don't get it here. Yeah, they don't get it. They, mm-hmm. And they'll never get it. No. It's just not possible. Even if you have a daughter or a, a female partner or whatever, it's just not the same as yeah. actually being brought up, living with and dying with an overreaching umbrella sexism. Yeah. And in, in Afghanistan, you're right. It's, it's, it, it should make everyone angry, not just women. It should make everyone angry and disgusted and appalled at what's going on there. Mm. It, it really should. It's such a it's such a violation of absolutely everything, and there is no nice way of putting it. Mm-mm. It is. It, there is. You know. There, there's a whole section of society, a whole section, which are being denied their basic human rights. Yeah. They have no voice. They can't decide what they wear. They're not allowed to learn. You know, uh, uh, the the people that we and the women that we spoke to were at the end of their graduation or their schooling. But there's a whole thousands and thousands millions who are not going to be able to write. They won't be able to read. Can you imagine what a disadvantage that is? Not allowed outside on your own. Yeah. You're, and you're brought up like that. Mm. You're brought up to think you're basically a second-class citizen. Yeah. Not not basically. You are a second-class yeah. citizen. You you're basically not your a husband. citizen. Yeah. You're Things not a done. citizen. And the idea that um, they should be having talks, anyone should be having mm. talks without 
uh, an Afghan woman present in the room to talk about it is is disgraceful. Yeah, really disgraceful. When you're there, is it hard to contain in anger? Yeah, it's really hard. It's also monumentally depressing. Mm. And do you get that access? Because obviously you are a woman, but you're not an Afghan woman. So do you think that that means that you get that access or people are more willing to talk to you? Or do you think actually often they weren't willing to talk to you? The women are very keen to talk. Which is the benefit, yeah. right? Very, very keen to talk. There's a lot of men there who are, you know, who are also conflicted. Mm. But I have less sympathy for the men who yeah. even if they're even if they're um if the women are doing protests and the women are taking their lives in their hands, they should be able to rely on their men folk as well yeah. to do that. Needs to be a combined um, effort. But it's not just it's not just um those in Afghanistan. I think um, you know, all those countries who had a stake in Afghanistan and plundered it mm. for twenty years and made a lot of money out of the war there. They have a responsibility as well. I mean, they yeah. basically abandoned a whole, a whole section of, of women to mm. to ho- uh, an absolute living hell mm. and a horror. I mean, yeah. really, there is there is no there's no um, there's no way of downplaying it. You went to Afghanistan in September 2021 and interviewed members of the new Taliban government, and then you return just over a year later for your documentary. And I wonder how it feels to return to a place like that. Perhaps it's not that there was an element of hope, but I guess maybe there was a seed of something would change. And, you know, at the beginning when they were saying, oh, women are going to go to school Mm. and all of these different things. And then you go and actually the reality is so different from anything that was ever promised. Mm. I don't think anyone who'd covered Afghanistan believed anything they were saying. That was also part of the frustration that somehow in the talks, peace peace talks in inverted commas leading up to the fall of Kabul and the Taliban taking over, um, they somehow persuaded the male politicians, largely, that they were reformed. And it was very difficult to see how there was any reforming. In fact, they've come back even even harsher mm. um, and more and more more determined to 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 um to do things their way, and also fundamentally very, very bitter and angry about the international troops who who um, invaded their country mm. and who used them and put them, many of them, in prison. Mm. Um, so even if you weren't a hardline Taliban um, before, there's, you know, there's a whole load of, of people in Afghanistan who didn't like the West, who, you know, who didn't like the international troops being there because they were an invading force. Yeah. And although they did, um, they made small advances in female rights, they still didn't want an invading force. They wanted their own government mm. in charge. That doesn't mean they wanted the Taliban, but they wanted their, that that's what they've been left with. Yeah. When you see all of these things and when you cover them, is it hard to maintain a faith in humanity? Or the thing that I would say from the two documentaries, the strength that I felt that they had was the people who talk to you, the people whose stories they share with you, and the incredible bravery of a lot of these people that are standing up and are saying, actually, no, this isn't the future we want. This isn't how we mm. want things to be. Yeah. I think it would be it would be quite easy to come away thinking, oh my God, mm. the world is just one big black, depressing, evil place. Mm. But actually it's the opposite because, you know, people like the mayor, the first female yeah. mayor of Tawana. She was incredible. Was an absolutely standout human being. Mm. St- 
standout human being in every sense. I mean, she was... A fearless. Yeah. And honestly quite fearless. And incredibly charismatic mm. and just disarmingly charming mm. with everybody. You know, uh, and and alongside the 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 woman who was taken hostage and beaten, and she shaved off her head and just wore a scarf, and you know, watched them kill and um, slaughter a man and throw his head around like a football. I mean, I'm just sitting there listening to her, thinking, "Oh my lord!" Just being able to re- to physically hold yourself together to recount that story is incredible. It's just beyond imagination. Or the the sex worker who yeah. who talked about all the the and sort of did it in a kind of trotted it all out with stories and as if it was you know so we, they paid for this threesome and then next day uh, I saw that my friend had had her face skinned and her arms cut off and legs cut off and put in and you're thinking whoa these people are gone through so much trauma yeah. and there uh, and she's v had got herself out of the sex work but my god it can't have been easy she no. was living in a very disheveled home with a very small child where she was the key earner mm. trying to do this call center job um oh, i just felt for her you go to this I'm going to call it a refuge for underage girls who have been trafficked or victims of sexual violence. And the lady who runs it says that the reason why she thinks this is becoming an increasingly uh, problematic thing is because a drug you can sell once and a human Mm. you can sell over and over again. And the hairs on my back stood up because the idea that anyone could want to profit off a child, Mm. profit off anyone, Mm. profit off a child. And how many of these issues are caused by drugs? Mm. How many of these issues are caused by, again, violence against women? And Mm. this idea that even in this case, that women aren't the same as men. And greed as well. Greed. And and whole families, because it's selling their daughters or uh, or uncles selling them mm. um because one family one of those families alma who's the the, the one incredible woman who run ran that refuge incredible lady. um who basically was doing it off her own back you know using her own money to try and then trying to get money from uh, mm. her american friends and and whatever to try and run it but had basically just got this sanctuary. And up until then, those kids um, had not known anything safe. They'd been, they'd been either trafficked by various male relatives or their families had, were involved with the cartel and they were, there, they were then used as... And kids can't complain and they can't get mm-hmm. out and they can't do... And they're children. Yeah, they're real. They're they're kids. Some of the stories that you've covered have been some of the biggest in of the last three decades. So you were the first reporter to broadcast live from Tripoli, Green Square, as rebel forces took over the Libyan capital. You independently accessed Myanmar's Rakhine State and got first-hand evidence of what the UN called ethnic cleansing. You recently interviewed President Zelensky. And you covered the Turkey-Syria earthquake. So you're a presence on our screen and you're telling us about the most important stories. What is it like being on the ground in those moments? And how do they shape the person that you are when you're not on the ground? Right. Whoa. Now we're getting deep. Now we're getting deep. (laughs) Well, it's fantastically stimulating being Mm. on the ground of, of, of any of those that you've just mentioned, incredibly stimulating, mm. and every fiber in your body's on my body's on fire, and it's pretty incredible to you know to be landing in Rakhine State and seeing all these um, emaciated uh, women and children and and all desperately trying to build their boats to get away. That was a an absolutely phenomenal, incredible moment, series, you know, time. 
And I remember texting my foreign editor on the way back and him saying, because he wanted, he was, they were obviously fantastically worried about us and we had to keep on trying to check in and say that we were all right and limit our time there because we were timing it in between the guards marching up and down on the, um, and trying not to be seen by them. But all our evidence was not only presented before a parliamentary committee in UK, but has also gone towards the International Criminal Court and um, is, you know, part of the evidence that they're trying to press a, a, against uh, the Myanmar authorities um, mm -hmm. as a part of their case against uh, perpetuating a genocide and ethnic cleansing against them. And that really makes the whole job worthwhile mm -hmm. when something like that happens. Mind you, I thought it would be immediate, <laughs> and yeah. I was really disappointed. It would, it wasn't. Yeah, really disappointed. Yeah. Um, and there was a big, a lot of flat moments after that because I thought immediately people would see that and be so appalled, and they were. But all the politicians and the governments kept on, <laughs> kept on. Yeah. It just things just trundled on as as normal. And when um, something like that happens, you feel it shouldn't. Yeah, that and, it should stop. Def well, you sort of, I thought, I really thought, and that's not it from an egotistical point of view. I just thought we'd got the evidence. We yeah. got the evidence and so that was it nailed. Mm. But as I say, the fact that it's going before, it's being used by the International Criminal Court feels like it's, it's, some, it's something mm. and makes it worthwhile. But it does damage your faith a little bit <laughs> when it, yeah, because I thought I thought all of that was so appalling. Because remember, that was just that was just on the back of millions of people fleeing Rohingya, yeah. fleeing into a different country, and still living in camps now. And we're quick to forget. I think is the issue. I think our heads are turned when we see these news stories when they break. But it's actually keeping and and retaining that attention. Yeah. Because otherwise I think it is easy for, for politicians or for people to brush it aside to deal with more quote unquote urgent matters. Yeah. And when I think when the public lose it as a focus in the forefront of their minds, then it's allowed to be pushed yeah, to the side. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's our role as journalists, especially foreign correspondents, to keep on trying to Tell the stories. Bring things mm. to the fore and tell the stories. Because also, you know, look at Afghanistan. It's like, it's it's now much more difficult to get into Afghanistan. Yeah. It's much more difficult to operate in Afghanistan. They assign you a kind of minder um, now and, um, and you're only allowed to go to certain areas and yeah. do certain stories. And the focus has, has really gone off it because of there's much more of a focus and a magnifying glass yeah. on Ukraine and other sure. hostile um, environments and, and things that are, are going on, e you know, even in Britain, you know, there's a lot, been a lot going on in, in Britain. But I guess that's our role as, yeah. as newsrooms and foreign journalists to, to keep on reminding people that it's still going on and, mm. and bring them stories that engage, engage yeah. them. Is there anywhere that you wouldn't go? And I wonder if Afghanistan would now count as part of that. Why wouldn't I go there? I don't know. I mean, the only reason why I wouldn't go there is if they stopped me going there. Yeah. And um, and if they stopped me going there by they, I mean the Taliban, Yeah. Um, I think I'd try and make a lot of noise about it because I really want to go back to Afghanistan. So interesting. Yeah, and I, and I feel like that needs a lot more focus on it than it's getting. Yeah. Um, the reason why I asked was because you were held hostage. In Afghanistan. But yeah. I've been back there many times since then. Many, many yeah. times. And also things have changed quite a lot in mm. Afghanistan in terms of the landscape, who's holding the power. Every, everything about it has changed. Um, now that the Taliban are in charge and they present one face to the politicians and the UN people who they have to talk to and negotiate to negotiate with and they have a and they even have a certain um face for certain journal journalists mm. um because 
because they've learned a lot over 20 years about yeah. how to present themselves and 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 the power of of the media i mean i i bumped into someone that when we were presenting our our afghan documentary to a uk parliamentary group the all party parliamentary group on afghan women and girls and one of the people who had attended um was a a young freelance documentary maker who said oh i've just come back it was they were so helpful so lovely and it's like oh my lord well it doesn't matter what they're like to you they're still not allowing girls to be educated they're still they, they've stripped them of all their rights you've mm. got to constantly be doesn't matter if they they offered me tea that yeah. doesn't that's still tea with a dictator it's yeah. tea with a someone who's denying a, a a a woman just like me all their human rights yeah it's not excusable it's not excusable and i guess the the thing that we've all got to remember is about swallowing too much of the Kool-Aid yeah. that anyone's trying to give you. Yeah, everything with a pinch of salt. Yeah. This job isn't an easy job and it's it's not a safe job either. You've been shot at, you've been abducted, you've been held. How do you keep going back? And is it because you just have to tell that story? Definitely, I feel like I have to tell the story. Um, I'd also be lying if I didn't say a lot of the time I just really love the job. I think we realize we're in a really privileged position of being able to get to these places and being able to tell these stories and the responsibility to tell them correctly and get it right and really um nail a lie and really show what it's like and give give people a a real insight to what it's what it's like to be on the ground in a trench or to be a woman who or a girl who's desperate to learn but isn't allowed to and has to has to take enormous risks to get to a secret school where she's even further in danger because if they f- get found out they'll be lashed or their brothers will be beaten or their father will be you know put in jail yeah. you know it's also really really humbling very very humbling yeah. and it it's a constant reminder of just how lucky you are yeah. we are you know i am i was going to ask what do you take away from those stories that's what i take yeah. away i take away how phenomenally lucky i am to live the life that i am living to be in a secure environment mm. to have a a family to you know it just makes me feel incredibly humbled and lucky but also it, it does fulf- fulfill you with a real sense of you can't just sit back and not do anything you really can't just 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 take this all in and and kick back and lie on the sun lounger you've got to be doing something to to make a difference and and if you're the person or you're the team um that can do it you should be you should be able to do it obviously there's a massive com- com- competitiveness as well mm. um that also would be disingenuous not to realize that but i think that's all for the good mm-hmm. in many ways because as i say the 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 foreign correspondents i don't know they i i genuinely genuinely like foreign correspondents and and I have a a big respect for lots of them mm. and um I think it's sort of mutual because everyone has sort of been through similar things and sort of recognizes what you do to get there and how important it is to get yeah. the truth and we in a way we feed off each other and also everyone knows or has a an appreciation generally especially if you're of a certain experience and place in your career of the the impact that has on the people who are supporting you like mm. your family and your or your partner or your girlfriend or boyfriend or lover or whatever there there's a big toll on them yeah. too 
And in many cases, we wouldn't be able to do it, certainly in my case, 100% wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do it without all of them. And yeah. yet they they all go through it in a in a different way. Yeah, because it can't be easy for them either, you know. And Not easy. It's, like you say, you know, I'm sure for children, for a loved one, for family, friends, when they see you going into these environments, you know, you've got your reporter had mm-hmm. on but for for them you're still Alex yeah it's really hard on them and I definitely underestimated how much of a toll it takes on them you know on on Richard on my children who've all been impacted I think by my job not just the type of work I do but how consuming it is yeah and how um how committed I am to it. They, they, they struggle with that. So I, I think it has a massive impact on them and, you know, even my extended family, you know, yeah. my, my sister, my um, father-in-law, you know, they, it all has a, has a big impact. And, but also, I personally don't think I could do it without them. I definitely couldn't do it without them because yeah. it's, the, it's the hinterland that I run back to yeah. wherever, wherever they are. Mm. Um, that's, you know, and I, and I don't sleep well until I'm at home. Yeah. And that's nice that you said that because at the beginning of this interview, I asked you, where's home? And you said, well, it's kind of here, there and everywhere. But you've just said it there. That's that's where your home is. Definitely. Your Trouble is, it's all a bit spread. <laughs> I have to really work hard to try and get them in the same place. But um, that is, that's definitely, that's definitely my latest and most enduring and ongoing mission stroke. <laughs> assignment is to try and constantly get them all in one place well alex thank you so much for coming on the radio times podcast it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thanks for making it so easy if you enjoyed this episode you might like to listen to my interview with journalist krishnan guru murthy in which we discuss how newsround shaped him as a broadcaster and how he almost starred in a film with twiggy Or you might like to listen to my conversation with Louis Theroux, in which he reveals his guilty secret and how he originally wanted to be a sitcom writer. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>